Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Many parts of the Mountain West have a rich history of diversity, but also racism and exclusion targeting some racial and ethnic minorities. There were some places that they were able to establish themselves, but were subsequently driven out of them and other places where they were not welcomed at all. Stay with us as we look at the history of sundown towns and their present-day implications in this Colorado edition special, After the Sun Goes Down, from the Mountain West News Bureau and KUNC. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Sundown towns once drove out people of color or prohibited them from living within city limits. This practice started in the late 19th century, but the impact continues today. We're going to look at some of these towns in the Mountain West. We start in Colorado, where Chinese immigrants flocked to the state to find gold in the mid-1800s. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, they were tolerated in some mining camps and run out of others. Linda Jew is sitting at a table in the Douglas County Library near Denver. She's looking at an old black-and-white family photo. The lady on the top is my mother, Wawa. The formal portrait features nine people. The three young boys wear suits, while the four girls pose in dresses. Their parents sit in the middle. That's Willie Chin holding one of the twins. Missing from the photo is Willie Chin's father and Ju's great-grandfather, Chin Lin Su. In 1856, Chin immigrated from China to San Francisco as a young man. He was over six feet tall, had blue eyes, and eventually worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. Because he spoke English so well, they asked him to help organize the Chinese to build the railroads from California to Utah. Thousands of Chinese immigrants laid tracks for the railroads. And when that work ended, they needed other jobs. Former Colorado State historian William Way says many joined American and white European prospectors who came west to find gold, silver, and other riches. There were a lot of Chinese railroad workers who moved on to become miners. Chin was one of them and his mastery of English opened a lot of doors. He supervised other Chinese workers at one of Colorado's mining camps and became very wealthy. While Chin's accomplishments set him apart, the racism he faced did not. As the number of immigrants increased, so did anti-Chinese sentiment. The problem that the Chinese experienced was they were competitive in, if you will, the uh, labor market. Wei says the Chinese were tolerated because there was a chronic labor shortage. But when they started taking jobs that white people thought belonged to them, economic and cultural tensions heightened. There were some places that they were able to establish themselves, but were subsequently driven out of them, and other places where they were not welcomed at all. The 1870 census shows Chinese people were living in Nevada and the territories of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. Bigotry rippled through the Mountain West. One example was in Leadville, Colorado, a city about two hours west of Denver. Some of the things that were being said to keep them out were really just totally racist about their clannish, their dirty, they drown their children, just ridiculous things like that. Stephen Whittington runs the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum there. In the 1880s, Leadville's population exploded thanks to the silver boom, and it became the state's second largest city. But not everyone could find their fortune here. There were 16 Chinese men living in Leadville who had been hired to dig a ditch. He says they had just started working when a group of men from a neighboring town showed up and threatened them. 
The man packed up and basically took off. A year later, residents blew up a Chinese man's cabin while he slept. He survived, but quickly left town. There was an unwritten rule, says Winnington, that, quote, John Chinaman was not allowed to enter the city limits and no other Chinese ventured there for decades. Today, Lake County's population is less than 1% Asian. I am unfortunately not really surprised that people did not like him. That's 21-year-old Grace Parker. She grew up in Leadville and is working at the mining museum for the summer. If you're not Caucasian or like white, you're usually attacked, which is really sad to hear about because I'm not part of that majority. Parker is Chinese and was adopted by a white family as a baby. She never learned about this part of Leadville's history as a kid, but says she's always felt comfortable living here. Growing up, I never really had a problem with like anything racial or anybody that kind of not liked me because of my race. But Parker was born more than a century after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It was the first measure to broadly restrict immigration in America. It wasn't repealed until 1943. America wouldn't have been built if it wasn't for the, the Chinese, because the railroads opened up the country. Back at the library, Linda Ju is reminiscing about her great-grandfather Chin Lin Su. He eventually moved his family to Denver's Chinatown, which was destroyed by a violent mob in 1880. Chin stayed in the city, though, and his descendants still live in the area today. I always tell people that I'm the fourth generation of a Colorado pioneer. Even though Chin was highly respected, he wasn't immune to racism. In 1977, he was honored with a stained glass portrait at the state capitol. He's wearing a red mandarin collar, but Ju says this is a misrepresentation. Chin never dressed like that. He always wore a Western suit. I'm Stephanie Daniel. As we just heard, sundown towns once drove out people of color or prohibited them from living in city limits. And in Colorado, Chinese residents were driven out of Colorado mining towns. In the early 1900s, white people in Moscow, Idaho, also expelled a small community of Chinese residents. And for a time, that likely made Moscow a sundown town. Today, that event seems distant from this blue dot in a red state. But as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, some people of color still feel uneasy living there. Dr. Sidney Freeman, a professor of educational leadership, is cooling down at the Starbucks on University of Idaho's campus. We're sitting on what I would call sacred ground or holy ground. This is where the Black Student Union once lived back in the 1970s. It never had a prime location and lost its physical space in less than five years. It was always either in a basement or it was in some other building that was not deemed as one of the high quality buildings. Back in 1973, a black student quoted in the school newspaper said lack of diversity was the real problem. There weren't many black students there at the time. In 2019, they comprised roughly 1% of the student body. Freeman recently secured a new home for the Black Student Union, but his work hasn't been easy. He remembers a conversation with school leaders about Black students. They directly went to student-athletes. So their perspective on the role of Black students on campus was those of generating revenue for the institution. This year, at 36, Freeman became a full professor. He's only one of a few Black instructors in the university's 132-year history to receive this title. Freeman says to survive as a Black man in academia, he faces a high bar. 
you have to be rare and exceptional, but you're not acknowledged as such. He remembers the school recognizing him with a welcome sign when he took the job. After a while, it came down. They quickly said, oh, we want to get that changed. We want to get something more universal. Freeman's experience reflects the challenges people of color face in predominantly white institutions and places, even if the legacy of a sundown town is a historic blip there. The late sociologist James Lowen uncovered thousands of sundown towns across America. He said racism and a lack of diversity sometimes persist in those places and permeate their institutions. Once you have driven out your Chinese population, once you're used to keeping out a group, it becomes easier to keep out the next group. In Moscow, what little we know about this history comes from an eyewitness account of so-called cowboys expelling the town's Chinese residents. Today, Black Lives Matter signs line the windows of Moscow's restaurants. The town of 25,000 saw multiple racial justice protests last year. In other words, Moscow's exclusionary history seems a distant memory. But even in this progressive bubble, Vanessa Anthony Stevens is weary. We were told by many white professors, this is such a nice town. And when we talked to our Native colleagues, it was a very different story. Stevens and her husband, Philip, are professors. She's white. He's a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe. In 2019, they found racist postcards on their doorstep. Today, she doesn't want her family members of color to go out alone. Others share her worry. When I said, hey, I'm going to grad school in Idaho, everybody's like, are you sure? <laughs> like, what part of Idaho? I'm like, Moscow, are you sure? That's graduate student Katie Turner, a Louisiana native. A social media post saying she doesn't feel safe as a black woman in Moscow went viral last year. Unfortunately, I didn't feel comfortable going anywhere alone. Still, Turner says living here has helped advance her theater studies. The school is among the nation's land-grant universities, and its revenues come from unceded Native American land. That's widened her understanding of injustice. Her research asks, When colonizers come in and they make you change everything about yourself, how do you bounce back from that, or do you? Idaho's ban on public schools teaching critical race theory, which examines racism as a systemic problem, has further strained Turner's sense of belonging here. People like Doug Wilson also complicate how marginalized groups feel about Moscow. If you read through slave narratives, you're going to get accounts that are blood-chillingly horrific. You will also get accounts of former slaves who loved their masters. The conservative pastor is thriving in Moscow with churches, a classical Christian school, a liberal arts college, and a publishing house. Wilson disavows racism, but in a decades-old book on slavery, he defends Christian slaveholders. Debbie Line, a Chinese-American, left town years ago to escape this kind of thinking. She and her siblings were perennial outsiders here. We never really were invited over to people's friends' houses. We never dated anyone. Lyon's great-grandparents were likely the first Chinese-Americans to settle in Moscow after white people drove out Chinese residents. Her brother, Michael Chin, remembers a defining moment in high school. The class was reading Native American poetry. My classmates started saying, well, we still think that Native Americans live off the government, are drunk, are gamblers. If his classmates believed this, Chin thought, then how do you feel about me? Today, he wonders if his hometown will ever be a place where people of color feel at ease. I'm Robin Vincent.
Coming up in just a moment, our special After the Sun Goes Down from KUNC and the Mountain West News Bureau continues with a trip to a county in Nevada that once excluded Native Americans and how that's affected the Washoe tribe's culture today. The Indians uh, weren't allowed in town after 6 o'clock. When the whistle blew, you had to be on your way home. If you were caught on the street or anywhere, you got put in jail. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. As a society, how can we deal with something if we can't face it? This question inspired the late sociologist and historian James Lowen to dig for the truth and uncover thousands of what are called sundown towns. These are places that prohibited people of color and other minorities from living there. During this era, this terrible era, when race relations gets worse every year, 1890 to 1940, Black folks get driven from or expelled from or pushed from or just frozen out from county after county all across the north. Some downtowns that have not taken steps to get over it still help inculcate, even if they are not sundown anymore, even if they have 11 black families now, they still inculcate in white minds the idea that uh, this is all by chance and it's just kind of natural that white folks end up in charge of things, dominating this town and and, uh, so on. It's not natural, it's social, it's historical, and we need to admit our past so that we can transcend it, so that we can stop having these unequal outcomes Today, we're looking at the legacy of some Western sundown towns. We started our journey in Colorado with the story of how Chinese immigrants who flocked to the state to find gold in the mid-1800s were treated, and how some residents in Moscow, Idaho, feel about their past. In a moment, we'll come back to Colorado. But first, Paul Boger tells us about how sundown town laws led to the development of Indian colonies in Nevada that have had a lasting impact on indigenous people. It's a relatively short hike from the abandoned Central Pacific train tunnels to the Petroglyphs overlooking Donner Lake in Northeast California. But it's hot and the trail is steep, so the going is slow for the roughly two dozen kids from the Washoe tribe of Nevada in California. It's the group's annual summer trip to swim in the lake, and the tribe's culture and language resources director, Herman Fillmore, wants the kids to get something more out of it. Fillmore asks a nearby chaperone if they remember the Washoe name for the place. Hearing the name serves as a simple reminder of how Donner Lake, nearby Tahoe, and much of the eastern Sierra have always been home of the Washoe. But it's not where these kids live today. Most live in Nevada communities the government created to separate indigenous people from nearby white towns and settlements. They're similar to reservations, just closer to urban areas. Fillmore says the kids understand the implications. What I've seen a lot with our youth now is that they they are interested in our language and culture in new ways. They are able to kind of see this uh, colonial world that we live in through a new lens. And for many, that brings an understanding that for much of our history, official U.S. policy sought to eliminate indigenous culture. From the federal government's perspective, that's always at the foundation. That's Matt Makeley, a history professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He wrote the book, The Small Shall Be Strong, a history of Lake Tahoe's Washoe Indians. He says when the Washoe were pushed out of their native lands, 
the tribe was robbed of vital cultural practices, like its annual pine nut harvest or fishing in Lake Tahoe. It is this desire to assimilate and this national kind of to coalesce around the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant identity and hyper-patriotism was very popular and washers were, were easy targets. Makeley explains that it wasn't just the federal government enacting racist policies. Prior to the First World War, Nevada's Douglas County adopted the ordinance that prohibited Native Americans from being in the towns of Minden or Gardnerville after sunset, at the risk of jail time or worse. In a 1984 interview with the University of Nevada Reno's oral history program, 70-year-old Washoe elder Bernice Alchaberry described her experience with the law. The Indians uh, weren't allowed in town after 6 o'clock. When the whistle blew, you had to be on your way home. If you were caught on the street or anywhere, you got put in jail. Did you ever know anybody who got put in jail? Oh, yes, a whole bunch of them, my father included. Alchaberry also detailed systematic discrimination akin to what black people faced in the Jim Crow South. Well, when you went to town, you were just, uh, you weren't allowed different certain places. You couldn't uh, eat in the restaurants, you couldn't, uh, and they had a soda fountain, and uh, you couldn't go in there. You could go in there and, or- and order ice cream, but you couldn't sit down at the table and eat it. Douglas County's sundown laws weren't officially repealed until the 1970s, and their legacy is central to a debate still raging today. That's because twice a day in Minden, you hear this sound. The siren wails from behind the town's volunteer fire station and can be heard for miles. Town officials steadfastly assure residents it's a tradition meant to honor first responders and is not related to the sundown ordinance. They've resisted calls to shut it down completely. But for many Washoe living in the area, such as tribal official Daryl Cruz, the siren signals enduring divides. He says the communities are entwined, the kids go to school together, and when the pandemic struck, the tribe opened its health center to all. Well, to me, when I see the resistance from Minden making that change, it's like, what kind of neighbor is that? What kind of neighbors are you guys? This year, Nevada lawmakers passed a law banning sirens from sounding at times once associated with sundown laws. And in an effort to comply with the law and to work with Washoe leaders, the town recently moved the siren to five. It's a move that has satisfied only some. And for Herman Fillmore, the Washoe Culture and Language Resources Director, it underlines the challenges to preserve the tribe's way of life. We have a lot of trauma and loss in our communities, and a lot of the time what we're still trying to do is piece together that story, piece together that information, bring it forward and create new speakers for the, for the future. Back on the trail, Fillmore says it's important to understand what it means to be an indigenous person in America and Washoe specifically. Our culture, our language are very unique and distinct, and we want our kids to be proud of those things that we were once forced to be ashamed of. That culture may be fragile. Fillmore says there are only about 10 elders left who can still speak Washoe fluently. I'm Paul Boger.
Loveland, Colorado is well known for being the sweetheart city because of its Valentine remailing program. But many longtime residents recall signs that once told black people they were not welcome. Those memories, along with recent actions from the city council, have sparked a racial reckoning. In the final story in our special After the Sun Goes Down, KUNC's Adam Reyes has more. One of Loveland's first Black Lives Matter protests was in June 2020. Co-organizer Elijah Marshall held a My Blackness is Not a Threat sign and turned to tell a 10-year-old girl You're love, and you're going to grow up to be a strong, beautiful black woman, regardless of what this world tells you, okay? Marshall's very fond of the city she's called home for six years, despite racist comments, harsh stares, and angry backlash against her peaceful protest. And she's not alone. Discussions about how present racism really is or ever was in Loveland put residents at odds. Black community is no longer victim of institutional racism. Yeah, we're still not welcoming, even though the signs are we gone. No prejudice. The racism was was so known. It's even crazy now. to call it history because it's like current events. It's happening. Loveland has a town that accepts diversity. Summer 2020 put the issue in the spotlight. A black door-to-door salesman held at gunpoint. Armed, angry counter demonstrators at a Loveland against racism rally. And more like all-white city councilor debates over race. Because I do not consider myself even remotely part of any kind of a problem out there in terms of racism. I want to say, Dave, thanks for not in August 2020, the mayor introduced a 275-word resolution to officially acknowledge systemic racism and diversity's value. No action required. The council's mostly conservative majority voted to shelve it indefinitely because... I really do not vote on anything I haven't had time to read and study. That's been a general council rules. Councilor and mayoral candidate Don Overcash and the rest of the majority say they just wanted to study the resolution in a future meeting. But that's not what they actually voted to do. There were elements of it that I probably, upon study, would disagree with. Overcash acknowledges a few racist individuals likely live in Loveland, but he doesn't think there's a pervasive problem, despite non-white residents testifying before the council about racist experiences. I can direct you to people of color that would say, I don't see what the problem is. They would say they're making an issue. Overcash wants to focus on solutions like affordable housing. He says Loveland's sundown past doesn't need to be addressed. That's divisiveness versus solving the problem. So uh, I just think we got a lot of work to do. If we're talking about division, sweeping it under the rug only like divides us more. Alasia Marshall, a black certified nursing assistant, says there'd be benefits to addressing hard history in a way that tells citizens. Black citizens, especially, that we understand, we know where we've been, and we, we empathize. So how can we move forward? Sundown signs, KKK rallies, a black nanny forced out, and more hateful acts worked to keep Loveland white back then. Today, it remains overwhelmingly white. Some try to justify its lack of diversity by saying something like, This is all by chance, and it's just kind of natural that white folks end up in charge of things, dominating this town, and so on. That echoes in the hundreds of sundown towns the late sociologist James Lowen uncovered nationally. He says that narrative is false because... Between 1865 and 1890, black folks went all over the place. That included Loveland. But things changed in 1930 and 40, as the census counted zero black people in the city. This era set diverse population growth back decades in many areas, Lowen says, limiting black generational property wealth. I don't know what would draw people of color here, but I can tell you what turns them away. What turns them away is feeling like they don't belong. 
Rob Pride moves to the area around 1990. Of Loveland's 37,000 residents then, about 100 were black. While the 48-year-old black man and local police officer says he's endured racism here, he insists it's not part of the community's overall atmosphere. But he says his view shouldn't be used to write off others' differing experiences. Because they're not that way, because they're not racist, because they don't treat people bad, maybe the attitude tends to be like, it doesn't happen here, that's just not Loveland. That needs to stop, he says. Racist experiences should be taken more seriously. Loveland's racial reckoning didn't end last summer. This year, talk of city-level inclusion efforts like a diversity commission led to intense debate between counselors and citizens, some calling the idea divisive. And local school leaders are under fire for equity efforts. Still, there's forward momentum too, like local nonprofits organizing the city's first Juneteenth celebration this summer. Did the 13th Amendment end slavery? I don't think so. 26-year-old Alasia Marshall hopes to raise a child here someday. She wants them to know... Even though, like, a place can have some spooky stories and a really shady past, it's still a place where you can go and feel safe and feel heard and feel listened to. But getting there, Marshall and other non-white residents say, starts with acknowledging that really shady past. A difficult task, considering many white people aren't willing to believe those residents' daily experiences with racism now. I'm Adam Reyes. Our special After the Sun Goes Down was produced in conjunction with the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find and share all of the stories, see photos, and a video exploring the broader impacts of sundown towns at KUNC.org sundown. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And special thanks to Dave Rosenthal with the Mountain West News Bureau and KUNC's Jackie High for digital editing and support on this project. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.